baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley and it's been quite the couple of weeks for the Braves since last we spoke as they have been red hot at home and they are flying high in the National League East standings and wheeling towards October looking to perhaps be the best team in the National League by the time all is said and done. We've got a lot to dive into on this show as the Braves just had a very profitable homestand and a big time series win against the Washington Nationals to cap it off as they head out on the road for the next seven games. We'll talk about all of those things, and I've got a special guest for this episode, as always, my friend Mark Lemke from the Braves Radio Network. Of course, you know his work from his time with the Braves in the 90s as the club went from worst to first in 91. Lemmer was a huge part of their World Series against the Twins there, and of course, a member of the team that won the World Series in 1995. So we'll talk some 90s Braves, we'll talk some 2019 Braves, and everything in between as Mark Lemke joins me a little bit later in this episode of From the Diamond. I want to invite you, as always, to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please leave a rating and a review. Those are really appreciated. And make sure you're following along on social media. You can find the show at FromTheDiamond underscore on Twitter. I am also on Twitter at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. And on Instagram, the show is at FromTheDiamond there, no underscore on the end. And I am still at Grant McCauley on Instagram as well. And, of course, every episode of the show, as well as all the special features, articles, and other fun stuff I'm doing throughout baseball season, you can find it at FromTheDiamond.com. Let's dive in and talk about the week that was for the Atlanta Braves. They came home for a big homestand, having played some pretty good baseball on the road. And, of course, overall, the Braves have been playing great baseball. They haven't dropped a series since that little two-game hiccup against the Kansas City Royals some time ago. Atlanta's continued to win series after series and has cobbled together a pretty nice winning streak in the midst of all of that as well. Not just an overall winning streak, which got up to nine games before a loss to Max Scherzer and the Nationals on Sunday. The Braves had won 13 consecutive home games. That is a modern franchise record. It surpassed the 2000 club, which had won a dozen in a row. And when you start talking about things that haven't been done since the 1890s, you're probably doing something pretty well, blazing a new trail, Great to see that as the Braves continue to play great baseball and doing it head-to-head against a club like Washington. That really kind of took the wind out of their sails, I think. If there were any hopes of winning the National League East, Washington had to take that series against the Braves, and they really never got into it and had a chance to even be in position to take it. By the time their ace got to the mound on Sunday, Atlanta had already won the first three games of the series, so that was definitely the message the Braves wanted to send to the Nationals. They came into town seven games back, They left town nine games back, and now the Braves and Nationals will meet one more time for a three-game series on the upcoming road trip. But you can pretty much turn the focus, if you're Washington, to getting into the playoffs and getting into that wild card. And they've got a pretty rough ride for the rest of September, so we'll see how things shake out for them. Braves have another chance to take another series and put another dent in Washington's playoff hopes as that wild card is 
a really fascinating race. It's the Chicago Cubs that are chasing the Nationals right now for the top spot. But all of a sudden, the Arizona Diamondbacks have also inserted themselves in that. So it's been pretty interesting to watch. And what should be a, maybe a photo finish by the time all is said and done in a wild card race at the end of September. And punching the ticket to October is the number one job for the Nationals now. And, of course, they're going to have to hold off some other clubs while the Braves can focus on winning baseball games. But there's something that I don't think that any of us expected about a month ago, and that was could the Braves have the top record in the National League by the time everything is said and done? Well, there's a distinct possibility that could be the case, or at the very least that the Braves will have a shot at this thing, as the Dodgers have, I won't say come back down to earth because they're still an outstanding team, but the Braves have elevated their game, having won 17 out of 20, and are now just three and a half games behind the Dodgers in the overall standings in the National League for best record. And the Braves are within, I believe, five games of the Yankees and the Astros, who are the top record in all of baseball. That's not a discussion we were expecting to have. It's not something that the Braves were too far away from, but it seemed more of a pie-in-the-sky kind of thing that you were going to have to go on an outstanding run to insert yourself into that conversation, and that's exactly what the Braves did. Now they have 18 games as a road trip begins to perhaps grab the best record in the National League, and I'm sure that's something else that the Braves would like to set their sights on as they would love the opportunity to host as many games, as many series as possible once you get to the postseason. So the Braves wrapped up their homestand having taken eight out of nine. They beat up on the White Sox, the Toronto Blue Jays, and then took three out of four in that series against the Washington Nationals before finally dropping a game on Sunday. Atlanta now starts a seven-game road trip in Philadelphia this week and has 18 games remaining in this season. A few statistical notes for you as you look at what the Braves have done. Ronald Acuna Jr. at the top of the order. Things have been a little bit quiet for him over the last few weeks. He got to the 30-30 club, but getting that 40 homers and 40 steals and joining that elite group, he's closing in on it. Needs three homers and six steals to get there. But for Acuna, he just wants to get himself right and get on track and be ready to go through October and do some serious damage there. But 18 games to go. The three home runs seems like something he can get to. Six stolen bases could be a challenge. And if I hadn't seen him come out after the All-Star break and steal 12 bases in 16 days, then I'd tell you maybe he won't get there. But the number one thing I think is consistency. That's what he's looking for. Showed some signs during the Washington series, but might be the beneficiary of a day off here or there down the stretch just to kind of keep him fresh, mentally reset, and give him the opportunity to have everything go in the way that he wants and the way that the Braves need by the time October comes around because that will be the most important baseball that's played all year. And statistical accomplishments aside, that is priority number one for everybody wearing the Atlanta Braves uniform. Meanwhile, Atlanta clocked a couple more home runs on Sunday, and that has their total up to 227 home runs on the season. And that total is just eight home runs away from the franchise record of 235 homers that the 2003 club set, and that seems to be well within reach at the rate the Braves are hitting home runs. Heck, the rate we're seeing home runs hit across baseball. It would seem like eight home runs in 18 games is possible for just about any club. Braves are going to take aim at that, and perhaps they'll have another franchise record under their belts by the time this season comes to a close. Some other good news on the homestand comes in the form of a couple of injury updates. Of course, the Braves were able to activate Austin Riley from the injured list and take one more step to getting back toward full strength, but a couple of other outfielders are looking to make their return sooner than later. Ender Enciarte is ramping up his baseball activities. Let's hear from him on the progress he's made on the recent homestand. 
I've been uh, swinging in the cage uh, at 100%. I would, I've been facing the machine and I've been putting on a hard speed so I can kind of simulate myself in a game and uh, been throwing the hardest I can in a short distance and, and I felt great. So uh, it'll be more of what I can do running-wise and once I'm ready to trust it and go at 100%, that, that's going to tell me when, when I'm good to come back. But I want to come back as soon as possible and they want the same. So like I say, it's day-to-day thing. And, and hopefully the quicker the better. Inciarte remains hopeful that he'll be able to return from a grade two hamstring strain before the end of September. I'm pretty positive I will. I don't want to say it will happen that way. I mean, God's in control and and hopefully I'll come back when, when it's the best for me and for the team. I really want to play. I watch the games every day from dugout and it makes me want to be part of what the team's doing every day, but it's one of those things that you can't control, and it's good the team's been playing great. It's been fun to watch. But uh, I'm doing the best that I can to come back early. And uh, I can't tell you right now which day that's going to be, but uh, I'm pretty encouraged that's going to be before the season ends. Meanwhile, it was also a big week for Nick Markakis. He'll be playing in simulated games while the Braves are off in Philadelphia. And perhaps, if all goes well, Markakis could rejoin the team as soon as the weekend series in Washington. He's been on the shelf with a fractured left wrist since the end of July. Markakis was given a six- to eight-week timetable to return, so there was always the possibility that he could get back before September. But with a broken wrist, you just didn't know how it was going to heal, how it was going to respond. But it appears everything is going well and progressing for Markakis, who is going to get himself ready throughout the week by getting as many at-bats as he can as he'll face some live pitching. And then the Braves will make a decision perhaps as soon as the weekend but it does look like a very real possibility that Markakis can rejoin the club before season's end. So that's what's going on with the Atlanta Braves as they wrap up a very good homestand and now get set for a seven-game road trip that begins in Philadelphia on Monday. I talked a lot of Braves baseball over this recent homestand, but I also had a chance to sit down and turn back the clock with a friend of mine. His name is Mark Lemke. Of course, you know he played for the Braves throughout the 90s, was a big part of their success as the team went from worst to first in 91, won a World Series in 1995, and really set off on the path that a lot of us think about the Atlanta Braves now as a winning franchise. That wasn't really the case before the 90s came around, but now it seems like perhaps we're entering a new kind of golden age of Braves baseball, if you will, depending on how this team is able to establish itself, not just in 2018 and 19, but moving forward. They've got a great young core, a lot of homegrown talent. They're bringing in the right veterans. A lot of this kind of echoes of the success the Braves had in the early 90s, and that's something I wanted to sit down and talk with somebody who should be an expert on those 90s Braves and, of course, spends a lot of time around the club these days. Here's my discussion with Braves analyst Mark Lemke of the Atlanta Braves Radio Network. Longtime friend of mine, Mark Lemke. We do the Braves pre- and post-game show together, and I guess we've been doing it in some way, shape, or form for about 15 years now. Time really flies. A lot of years. So, certainly has. More than a couple, that's for sure. And you played more than a couple of years with the Atlanta Braves when they were coming out of what I would say is kind of a, a little bit of a historical parallel to where they are now. As you've looked back over the 14 straight division winners, you were a part of a lot of those. Uh, when you reflect back on that and you come to a place like SunTrust Park and you see the banners still hanging up, you still have people that walk up to you and say, hey, I remember this team, I remember this play. What does that kind of mean to you in the long term now that you've had some time to be away from the game and just kind of appreciate it, I guess. It means a lot, Grant, because of the fact uh, when you play the game, you know how hard it is to get to that level. Uh, there's a lot of good teams out there, a lot of good organizations. And not only to be able to 
turn it around into a winning type atmosphere with the Braves, but to keep it going. And, and it went going long after I left the team and uh, names have changed, but the Braves organization has stayed on top up until, you know, a little bit of a bump in the road there and maybe the last few years, but it yeah. uh, looks like they're back on top again. Yeah, it's really amazing, and it's certainly not a given. And we knew that because the Braves moved to Atlanta in 1966. They won the NL West back in 1969. They won it again in 1982. But outside of that, there was really not a lot to speak of when it came to big moments for the Braves if you were looking from a team perspective. Hank Aaron breaking the home run record certainly something everybody identified with the Braves over that time. But until you guys came along in the early 90s, and really made this city and really the entire country believe it was kind of one of those things where the Braves, I don't know if they necessarily had an identity that went beyond, hey, here's a star player here or there, but you guys came on as a full team, and all of a sudden the success and the winning became the hallmark of the Braves. And you see a lot of organizations have what they call rebuilds out there, and some of them are successful, but their success doesn't last that long. That's the amazing part, I think, of that run through the 90s and for, what was it, 14 or 15 division titles and uh, five World Series during the 90s. You know, you just don't see that type of extended success. A lot of times you see teams turn around, they win a World Series or two like the Toronto Blue Jays, then they they have a, a drought and they, they don't. And the Dodgers haven't won since, I think, 1988. Yeah. So, you know, you don't think that way. When you think of the Dodgers, you think, wow, they must have won somewhere along the way. You just assume it. Just goes to show you how tough it is to stay on top. Yeah, and the Dodgers have been a club obviously spending a whole lot of money now more than anybody in baseball, but they're still looking for that first World Series in, what, 31 years now. If they don't go to the World Series and win it this year, you can tack another year onto it. I believe that would make 31, but either way, talking about a little bit of what the Braves did the last few years after their run of titles, there were some ups and downs, but Atlanta still found its way to the playoffs a few times under Bobby Cox and Freddie Gonzalez before the full-on rebuild started, but it was kind of a rebuild that happened when Joe Torre was let go in the middle 80s and the Braves brought in Bobby Cox as a general manager and then everything kind of started to come together with some good trades, some excellent draft classes. And for you, I know that the experience of the players that we came to know as the core group of the Braves in the early 90s, you guys grew up in the minor leagues not necessarily knowing as much about losing because there was an awful lot of talent down there. You guys were winning at that level and kind of building the culture. I think a couple of things that Bobby Cox, when he took over as general manager, wanted to address was pitching and the farm system. And those two things worked out perfectly for him. The pitching, because that gets you going right away. And you look at this Braves team this year versus last year, a couple of guys gotten a little more experience, and you got some young pitchers in there. And now you've got Soroka and Freed coming into their own to mix in with a lot of good players. And the way you keep something like that going for a long time is you got to have health. Certainly got to have a team that stays healthy and superstars that stay healthy. But you got to have a good farm system to whereas you don't have to rebuild. You can just reload yeah. and just keep adding a few players every year from your system. And It's been an incredible, incredible run. It certainly has. For you, starting out your career, a lot of the guys that we would know from you know, the 90s fame were all coming up in the minors, but maybe not all necessarily knowing where you were going to fit into this puzzle. You knew you were going to be playing the infield somewhere. Second base, of course, is where we know you, but there was a guy named Ron Gant. It was a hotshot second base prospect at that same time as well. What was that like as you cut your teeth at the professional level to rise through the ranks and then build the relationships with guys you ended up playing with for a very long time? Well, I think when you first get into an organization, you, you – 
think to yourself, okay, this will be the team I play for. Yeah. And a lot of guys realize right away whether it's a trade or some other thing that happens that doesn't always work out just the way it happened when you signed because sometimes you get signed as a shortstop, get moved to second base, or signed as an infielder, get moved to outfielder. And that was the case for Ron Gant. We were sharing time early on in the minor leagues. Then they split us up, and he went ahead of me as a second baseman. I stayed behind. But we both got a chance to play second base um, every day, I, I guess, yep. at, a, at a level. And, uh, and then we got to the big leagues, and, and Ronnie eventually moved from third base then to the outfield where he settled in pretty nicely. Yeah, that worked out pretty well. And Ron Gann, of course, a 30-30 man, back-to-back seasons in 1990 and 1991. Now, you were playing with Ron Gant throughout the minors. Also, early on in your major league career, Ron had to go all the way back to the minors to kind of find his way back to the big leagues as an outfielder. What was it like when he came to spring training in 1990 as a full-time outfielder and then going on to watch the season that he had? I think he first went down to A-ball, so I was quite a drop when you're an all-star. I think he was an all-rookie team second baseman. Yeah, he was. Hit a, maybe 19-plus home runs. So they knew his bat was going to play at the big league level. He went down there, learned a completely different position. Then he jumped up to AAA with us in Richmond in 1989. And right away you could see, well, he's going to be able to handle this. And his offensive production just kept getting better and better. And like you mentioned, the 30-30, that's a thing that – you know, only superstar players did. He had yeah. power and speed, and he was one of those guys that was gifted with both. Yeah, we're seeing a guy like that right now to, to, again, go into these parallels between the two clubs. Ron was a little bit older, but Ron Old, Acuna Jr., has been pretty good at a very young age, and he's already gotten the 30-30 thing knocked off of his ledger, and now he's taken an aim at 40-40. He's got about three weeks to do it. Just from a guy who played – Obviously, you know how hard the game is. You played with guys who did the 30-30 thing. How incredible is it to you from that perspective to see a guy who is putting together the kind of season that has this power and this speed at that level? Well, I think he's got a great shot at going 40-40. I really do. It's just incredible, the the names that come up. I don't remember the names back in the day talking about an Eddie Matthews or Mellot or Frank Robinson. I think that was the last I heard recently as the youngest player to hit 37, 38 home runs. At that age. At that age. And you're – you're talking about the all-time greats. And I think one day, provided uh, Ronald Lacuna stays healthy, he'll join the elite guys that one day someone will be talking about, hey, this kid did this right. at such and such age. It's pretty incredible. And he's already doing it with a guy that's 27 years old and Mike Trout. When you look at young 30-30 guys, I think they're the two youngest who've ever done that. When you're in the discussion with a guy like Mike Trout, I think you've done quite a few things right And I think that over the next 10 years, as Ronald was nice enough to sign a very long extension with the Braves, there's going to be a decade to enjoy what this kid could grow into. And I think that's just as exciting maybe as what he's doing on the field already. And one of the exciting things is, Grant, you can start doing the numbers. Mike Trout just joined the 200-200 club, Mm -hmm. 200 stolen bases, 200 home runs. I believe he might have been the youngest guy to do that. And I started thinking Ronald Acuna has about a good six, maybe give or take a little bit, to get to where – Mike Trout is at 200, 200. There's only one guy, 400, 400, and yeah. that's Barry Bonds. That's pretty good. And I think both those guys have a shot at doing that. And that would be, talk about a, a elite club to belong to, that wouldn't be a bad one. Yeah, Ronald's looking at quite a few different clubs. 40, 40 would be another great one. 30, 30, when you look at the Braves that have done that, of course, we talked about Ron Gamp, but also Dale Murphy, and of course, Hank Aaron's another one that, you know, if you're in a club with that group, you've done pretty well for yourself. And I would say Ronald Acuna Jr. is on his way for that. Kind of flashing back to the early 90s 
Ron Gann, of course, a guy that we've talked a little bit about now. David Justice came onto the scene in, a, I think, a unique fashion because the Braves were trying to find a way to get his bat in the lineup. They felt he was going to be able to play every day. First base ended up being the spot because Nick Asaski didn't work out in a big-time deal because he was dealing with vertigo. You were up with the 90 team. You saw David Justice playing first base, and you were also there when Dale Murphy was traded away for the Philadelphia Phillies, and Dave got his outfield spot. What was that summer like and that kind of that storyline and the evolution of David Justice, who was a pretty influential player in that time for the Braves. Oh, no doubt about it. I don't think they envisioned seeing David as a long-term first baseman other than the fact they knew they wanted that bat in the lineup, and rightfully so. The unfortunate thing with sports and business is sometimes you got to let go of a beloved player. And Most of us guys coming up in the Braves organization thought so highly of Dale Murphy that it was was kind of a sad day, even though that we felt like if we're going to move forward, we got to – bring some of the young guys up and yeah. they got to do what they got to do. And, and Murph moved on, but that was not a fun day in the line of Braves history at, at that time. It's really strange too. Cause I think that the rumors about a possible Dale Murphy trade probably tracked over a three or four year span from the late eighties into the early nineties. And then of course, when he was traded in the summer of 1990, Braves didn't necessarily get that great return that you look back on and think, hey, this was a blockbuster trade that propelled him forward. Right. But just opening that spot up for David Justice, who hit, what, 23 home runs in the second half or after the trade, won the Rookie of the Year award and kind of had the Braves headed in the right direction into 1991. I guess, as you said, you just kind of had to turn the page, not necessarily from the person, but from a player personnel standpoint the game oftentimes reminds us that it is a business. If you thought there was ever one guy that was going to play his whole career in a Braves uniform, it would have been Dale Murphy. Yeah, But I think uh, that was going on probably five, six-plus years of really he was the only superstar we were holding on to. It didn't Even at that time, didn't look like the Braves were going to turn the corner yeah. anytime soon. So it was almost kind of like, well, maybe, Dale, you might be able to help out a better club than – you know, hang around with uh, a young team that's in a rebuild mode, and maybe they felt like, well, this will give him an opportunity to, to do some more things. Uh, I don't think anybody could have thought about uh, a year, less than a year later, the Braves would have turned things all the way around and became uh, champions of, of the division and go on to the World Series that next year. But things happened, but it was still one of those things where you just wish Murph could have been part of it. Absolutely. I think just from a kid growing up in that era, watching it, you always thought that, hey, when the Braves do win this thing, Dale Murphy's going to be right there in the middle of it. But that didn't necessarily play out that way. And he was one of a few different moves in 1990 that I think were just as big as looking at 1991 for the winter prior to that for the players that were signed once John Sherholtz came in, because John Sherholtz himself was a pretty big move for the Braves at that time. But that came after Bobby Cox had moved down from the general manager's box back into the dugout, and of course Murphy gets traded away. Bobby Cox was a general manager then, and then David Justice moves out into the outfield. But when John Sherholtz came in, what did that signal for the Braves team at that time as you guys were thinking about what 1991 could be? It's funny, Grant. I kept a headline in a newspaper, Sporting News, I believe mm-hmm. it was back then, with John Sherholtz's name in it and my name in it too as well. There you go. And uh, he was ridiculed for the move as well. People uh, thought he must be crazy. So the headline read something to the effect of Sherholtz to Atlanta is like trading Bo Jackson for Mark Lemke back wow. in those days. Is he nuts is what the article said. And I showed it to him uh, a few years back, and, and he wanted it. He, he thought That's that hilarious. was great. 
And I said, I held on to this forever, John, because I wanted to see how things were going to play out. And it played out pretty well, yes, it did. as it turned out. Of course, no one would have foreseen. Well, last what... time I'll ever get my name mentioned in the same sentence with those two guys. That's a good deal, though, for you. And Bo Jackson, you ended up outlasting Bo Jackson when it came to overall baseball <laughs> careers. Funny the way that works out. Probably not outdoing them, but yeah, different, different paths. <laughs> but either way, it is. you look at it on the surface level that first year, and it's easy to look at it and make a lot of assumptions about what it may or may not be. And we still do that today. And, of course, we do it a lot more and a lot more instantaneously because we're all connected via social media, podcasts like this one exists so we can instantly break stuff down and decide, hey, do I like this or do I not like this? And I know a lot of folks are probably looking back at this winter and wondering, it didn't look like the Braves did a whole lot in terms of making the overall impact. They signed Josh Donaldson. uh, They signed Brian McCann. And then, you know, really some minor moves that were made here or there, but more or less they stood pat. Back in the winter of 1990, once John Sherholtz came over, he signed a third baseman who was coming off a rough season and a couple of knee injuries to a multi-year contract and brought in a few other players that were not necessarily put their names in the superstar realm, guys like Terry Pendleton I'm speaking of, Sid Bream he brought over as well, Raphael Belliard was brought in. Defense, clearly, with that trio, was a big part of what they were looking to do. As those moves started to happen, uh, when you get to spring training, how did you guys size up that club, not knowing what was going to happen, but just knowing, hey, we got some new faces in here, and this team may be different than some of the ones we've been on? I guess the best way to size that up, Grant, was say we're going to be better. Yeah. Uh, to say we were going to go to the World Series, I don't think anybody realistically thought that. And it's funny because I talked to Terry about uh, his final year in St. Louis, and he was almost being cast off. Todd Zeal was playing yeah. third base. They were like, hey – Someone want this guy, take him. Little did they know he was going to come into Atlanta and not only lead us, but uh, win an MVP sure. and a batting title. It was just an amazing turnaround. But the defense is what turned the pitching staff around, I think, especially the corner defense. You had uh, a couple of guys that um, threw a lot of change-ups. You needed that defense at third base, and uh, Sid was a, a vacuum at first base. And then Rafael Belliard, I believe he broke the streak of Ozzie Smith when a gold glove like every single year, I think, or maybe fielding percentage. I think it was fielding percentage. Yeah, Rafi yeah. had a medal. And he was just a, a little Pac-Man at shortstop. So, and he fit in great, and those guys were great guys, too, inside the clubhouse. The Atlanta Falcons put out a video earlier today to kind of hype their season, which, of course, is coming up, kicking off this weekend as the NFL gets going. I bring that up because an Atlanta Falcon walked into the Braves clubhouse in the spring of 1991 as well, and Deion Sanders. What did Deion bring to the club in terms of – uh, maybe an X factor that the team didn't have prior to bringing in a Deion Sanders. Well, obviously Deion could play. He, he could play. He had um, he brought great speed. He had power, and he he brought uh, looseness to the clubhouse, a different perspective, way to look at things, and also a distraction. A lot of people focused on Deion and left the rest of the guys alone. Nice. So that was perfect, and he welcomed it too. And he liked the big time, and and uh, you know he knew when you play the game, you play to win. That's what you're doing it for. And, and Deion brought a lot of energy and enthusiasm into that clubhouse. It was great. A word that's thrown around with Josh Donaldson is swagger. I would imagine Deion Sanders, even though he wasn't necessarily – Hard to top Deion in that category. Yeah, no, I mean, nobody can. He has not turned it off at, at any point, I think, in his broadcast career, let alone his playing career. But even at, at the early age of his baseball career, the early days of it, you just kind of knew there was something special about this guy. And he provided a couple of big moments for the Braves in 91 – even though he wasn't there all the way through because he went off to play football, he left a couple of indelible memories on that 91 season with a couple of big home runs and certainly using his speed to help you guys out. Oh, he had the knack for the big moment, and he 
wanted those big moments. It's just amazing that a guy that's so great in another sport would even want to play baseball. It's such a difficult sport. And he did it, and he did it well. Um, I think he was an all-star in baseball. I'm not sure, but he, he had some really good years. But it's just amazing to see him trying to split up two sports, and he he did it. They were like grueling, you know, yeah. practicing with one team, coming to the other team, trying to play in a postseason, trying to play football on Sunday. It's amazing he could split his time up like that and still be successful at both sports. Let me ask you a little bit about that, too, because, of course, one of the great moments, I think, in Braves history of the not-on-the-field variety, but colorful moments, I would say, was Tim McCarver's condemnation, if you want to call it that. That may even be polite, of Deion Sanders choosing to play football and also trying to play for the Braves in the postseason. Uh, you were around when uh, – Dion was busy letting McCarver know what he thought about that. What was that scene like? You guys are trying to celebrate and have a good time. That had to be almost surreal, if not just downright strange. Yeah, most of us didn't really want to get into it that much, but I don't think anybody on the outside could understand how we felt having Dion on our team. I, I don't remember anybody saying, why is he doing this? Why is he here? This is such a distraction. I never once heard that. We were just amazed that he was doing it, and you have to be worn out. Yeah, You have to be tired trying to do that. So, I mean, it, it gave us energy. And we're saying, hey, if a guy's going to go through that to be part of our club, right. we want him here. He's kind of a unicorn in sports as well. I mean, he's one of those guys, I don't know that we'll ever see another player try to Probably play not. both of these at the same time in their career or in their life, let alone in the same day. And Dion was able to do that. As you put together that team early on in 91, and it was a mix of young players, great young players, and also just the right veterans, I look at this year and see that Josh Donaldson came over with the Braves, not in the same circumstances as a Terry Pendleton, but bringing over, I think, a confidence and a swagger. And, hey, look at the back of my baseball card. I'm going to do the things it shows there if I'm healthy. And I think Josh Donaldson has done a lot of that for TP. I don't think he had the same offensive profile whatsoever, but he certainly surprised a lot of people. What did Terry Pendleton bring to the 91 Braves that – maybe before that had been lacking or you guys just had not been able to find the right guy to do all the things that he was bringing? I think the general managers have more in common in that regard. Alex, obviously, up there in Toronto, knew the product he was bringing in, and yeah. Josh Donaldson knew him better than anybody else did. And John Schultz, maybe the same way in Kansas City, not that far from St. Louis, was able to you know recognize what Terry Pendleton brought to their club. I have an uncle that lived in... Um, Kansas City that was a St. Louis fan, Cardinal fan, he said, when we first signed Terry Pendleton, he told me, you got to watch this guy play every day. And I think the same thing about Josh Donaldson. I hear a lot of people say, I knew he was a great player, but I never seen him play every day. When you watch him yeah. play every day, offensively, defensively, how he doesn't chase out of the zone, how consistent he stays, it reminds me a lot of Terry, like you say, in different ways, but defensively, it's been Incredible to watch Josh Donaldson at their base. So in 1991, the Braves went worst to first. They were coming off multiple 90-loss, 100-loss seasons. Hadn't had a winning season, I think, since, what was it, 83, perhaps, was the last winning season the Braves had had. It had been a hot minute. Uh, this Braves team went through the rebuild of having 2014, 15, 16, and 17 were all 90-loss seasons or close to it. At least the final three were. When you went worst to first and got to the World Series, like you said, nobody saw that coming. Then you come back that next year, which I think is kind of like this club, perhaps. You snuck up on a lot of people the first year. The second year, you can't do that. But is it surprising to see this Braves team be better than the one last year? And I ask that because you guys kind of did that way back in 91 in order to 
find your way all the way back to the World Series again in 1992. Very difficult. And I could see this team uh, with the manager they have and the the character of the guys they have. You obviously got now a bullseye and a target on your back. Absolutely. You're not going to surprise anybody. So now you got a responsibility now to go out there and, and do what you're all hyped up. You won it last year. Everybody says, okay, maybe maybe we did it a year earlier than we thought. But then it becomes more difficult. You saw how the offseason went this year. There was a couple of teams out there making moves like they were gunning yep. for the Braves big time and going to spend money. a lot of money doing it. As you look at the two managers of the team, you play for one of the great players, managers of all time, and Bobby Cox, from that tree, if you want to call it that, of a lot of guys who've gone on to be managers in the major leagues, comes Brian Snitker, probably – the most unheralded of the quote-unquote managerial prospects that were raised under Bobby Cox and during that time. What do you think makes Brian Snitker so easy to play for and or makes players so willing to really give their all under a manager like that just from your experience of playing for a guy that I would imagine motivated you pretty well by his belief in each and every player? Well, I played for both of them, Brian Snicker in the minor leagues. Funny, and, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> Bobby, he's still going. Yeah, Bobby Cox in the major league level, and I think respect is a thing, Grant. I think the player they have the players' respect. They're straight shooters. Tell you how it's going to be, and I don't make it to the big leagues without Brian Snicker being a manager in the minor leagues. I, I think those guys are similar. They obviously have their own style, but they're very similar in the way that players will run through a wall for them, each of them. And it's just that amount of respect they gain from the players that they're not they're not trying to do it. They're just being themselves. And the players, I think, enjoy that. They they want to be treated like men and both those guys treat them that way. Is that something that comes from playing and being around a guy every day? Because baseball is that sport where you're not gearing up for Saturday or Sunday or playing three times a week. You're playing every single day unless you're blessed with that off day once every ten days or two weeks or whatever it is or you get to the all-star break, you really live day in and day out with these guys. And I'd imagine for a manager, knowing the personality and the temperament of that guy each and every day probably helps you not necessarily relax in the sense of, oh, well, I can just take it easy now, but just be maybe more at ease knowing that you've got somebody that you're very much respecting and is respecting you and that you're able to play with on a day-in, day-out basis. Less tension in the clubhouse. Every day, when you're out there every day, you're grinding. Those two guys understand how difficult it is, and players don't need any more added pressure that's already on them. And I think a great manager deflects that from the player, and when things go bad, he takes it brunt of the blame, and when things go well, he gives it to the players. And I think both those guys do the same thing. It's funny because I come up in the minor leagues – with a very famous football coach named Urban Meyer. Uh-huh. Urban played a uh, couple of seasons with the Atlanta Braves in the minor league system before he went on to play college football and become a legendary coach. And Urban told me a story how he went over to Tampa, I think, in spring training, and he goes, I got to see uh, Bobby Cox, and, and they were playing the Yankees over there, and he said, it's just amazing how baseball is so different from college football. He said, I walked into Bobby's office. He's got his shoes untied, his feet up on the table, his <laughs> T-shirt on. He said, when I get ready for a game, I got guys banging their heads on walls. They're 
nobody's saying anything. Everybody's focused. Yeah. And, and that's just the difference of playing once a week versus every day and the 162 grind that baseball is. Yeah, it's pretty crazy the way that that works out. And and also just bringing up the fact that, yeah, you played for Bobby Cox in the big leagues. Folks know about that. we got plenty of Bobby Cox stories. They're always great. But what do you remember about Brian Snitker as a minor league manager? Because he wasn't too far removed from the game at that time either in terms of his playing career before he turned right around and got into coaching. And I think Hank Aaron's the one that got him started with that. I just remember him being a, a guy that was a developer, and that was his job. And uh, it's tough to put that behind you, the player aspect of the game. Uh, you still think you, you can play and you, you want to make it to the major leagues. He didn't do that. So the next thing he wanted to do is help each and every one of the guys he managed make it to the big leagues. And I think that's the same philosophy Bobby Cox had. Bobby told me one of his faults when he was a minor league manager, Grant, was that he thought everybody could make it to the big leagues. Yeah. And unfortunately, they, they don't and they can't. But I think a manager, when he goes about his business like that, everybody sees it. He takes the same amount of time with the first guy on the team as he does the 25th man on the team. That's a pretty amazing thing. And not everybody has the patience to do that. You no. talk about developers, teachers, mentors, whatever you want to call it. You probably got to be a referee at times to kind of get everybody, you know, wrangled into place. And there's a lot of big personalities when you start filling up a an office or a clubhouse or a locker room or whatever it is, you know, a lot of different types of personalities. So being a manager truly goes beyond penciling in a lineup every single night. You've really got to go through 25 different personalities throughout the season and kind of keep everybody on the same page. Well, you know, you can spot right away as a young player which guys are there to develop players and help you get to the the pinnacle of your career and make it to the major leagues and which guys may be just there for their own managerial stance and say, hey, you know, whatever happens to you guys doesn't matter. I just want to win here so I can get to the big league. So as you guys went along, 91 and 92 were trips to the World Series. 93, I think, was one of the most memorable years with the uh, running down the San Francisco Giants all the way down to the wire, the Fred McGriff trade. And then all of a sudden it kind of hit a speed bump the world of baseball did with a strike in 94. There's no World Series. Come back around in 1995, what was the thoughts of the Atlanta Braves club, the strike aside, just getting back to business and having some unfinished business when it came to getting into October? Well, I think it was the unfinished business part because uh, we had the two World Series. And, you know, we know going in the, to that one, it's hard to look ahead because you're playing the whole season. There's there's business you have to take care of before you get to a World Series. They're not as easy as it might have seemed at that time going to the World Series four times and then the fifth time in the late 90s, five yeah. times in decades, that's not as easy as maybe it, maybe it kind of looked. But, uh, you know, I, I just mentioned a couple names. Our Deion Sanders, I think about the big World Series he had against the Blue Jays. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 93, you wonder, you always wonder, or I always wonder, would things have been different had there been a wild card? Like the urgency for the Washington Nationals, if they knew – that if they don't win this division, they have to go home. Because we were in a similar situation to them as they are this year. Would it have been that urgent thinking to ourselves, well, if we don't win the division in 93, we'll just go to the wild card. Giants probably felt the same way, winning 103 games and have to go home. You would think that that would be enough to get you into the postseason. And and obviously one of the best teams in baseball, bell to bell that year, they would have won, I think, what every other division probably – in baseball that year. At that time, four they, divisions was all it was. They had probably the same predicament uh, that the Washington Nationals have, in my opinion, without the wild card being involved, that if they have any chance to beat the Braves or, or chase them down, you're almost going to have to beat them every single time you play them head on. 
you, know, you can't afford to lose any games. The Braves were built, I think, a lot on defense. Of course, we talked a lot about the offensive stars. We don't want to get too far into this thing or, or all the way through this thing without talking about the great pitching that Tom Glavin, of course, started. Greg Maddox joined him. John Smoltz was a part of this as well. All of those guys, very different types of pitchers, very different types of competitors. But you had to feel pretty good every fifth day with the guys that were jumping in, whether it was Steve Avery or Denny Nagel or some of the others that came along later on to give you that chance to win each and every night. And now I'm crunching some numbers here and not trying to throw a whole bunch of labels on young players to say, hey, you've got to be this version of this guy and so on and so forth. But when you talk about the Braves and pitching, it doesn't take very long for Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz to be thrown out in some way, shape, or form. Max Fried is leading the National League in wins after beating Steven Strasburg on Thursday night. Mike Soroka has the second-best ERA in Major League Baseball, not just the National League. He is right on the heels of Hunjin Ryu heading into the weekend and his big start against the Nationals and Max Scherzer on Sunday. Those guys are pretty impressive, and they're doing things that haven't been done since the likes of a Glavin when it comes to winning 15 or more games by a lefty for the Braves. Max Fried's the first one to do it since Glav. And Maddox, the last guy to win an ERA title, happened way back in 1998. That's some pretty special stuff. And again, I don't want to get too much into the labels, but having played with those three guys and having watched some of these young guys, how impressed are you by this new wave of brave starting pitchers led by Soroka and Freed, it would appear? I'm very impressed by those guys, Grant, and I'm very impressed the way the Atlanta Braves went about their success. Because even though this is the era of the live ball or whatever you want to call it, the, yeah. the balls are flying out of the ballpark. <laughs> they are. Yeah. But to me, the, the staple and the consistent thing that's going to help you win is going to be pitching and defense to give your offense, get them off the field, give them a chance to go to work on the other team. And the Braves have both those components. And right now the bullpen settled down. So you mix in those starting pitchers with their bullpen and the defense that the Atlanta Braves have, they got all the ingredients for a winner and – you know, we don't have to talk about the offense. That's going to be there. Yeah, it appears to be there. It's driven by a guy named Freddie Freeman, who seems to be the face of the franchise right now, though Ronald Acuna Jr., certainly Ozzie Albies and others are, are making their mark. And what that pitching on defense will do, Grant, is it'll save you certain nights when the offense maybe isn't there. It's pretty hard to go out there and pound teams night in and night out. Some nights you're not going to have it offensively, and you got to squeak by a team, and you need your pitching and your defense to be there. Yeah, all the components, you put them together, that's where the winning formula is born. Great balance this year. As far as winning is concerned, there's nothing bigger than winning the World Series. You guys did that in 1995. You told me a story a number of years ago about carpooling to Game 6 of the 1995 World Series. I wonder if you'd tell the folks out there the story of uh, getting to the game and who was it that rode with you to the game and what it is he ended up doing that night because by the time he was done, he won the World Series MVP. Yeah, it was uh, me and Tom Glavin yep. used to ride together. And uh, he always wanted a certain song played. And I had it in my car at that time. And I'd just play it. And we'd probably play it a little louder than loud. Okay. And uh, so it wasn't a whole lot of conversation going on. It was, a, I think it was Tommy was getting focused for that game. And, you know, I think that got me motivated as well. And that was, um, I think that was... We did it a couple times. We did it the year in 95 when he was, what did he pitch, eight innings against eight innings, the Cleveland yeah. Indians. Shut him down. Yeah, and then I think the following year when we came back from a 3-1 deficit to the Cardinals and Tommy pitched that game seven against St. Louis in a 96. Uh, NLCS. NLCS, yeah. I get confused with the NLDS, the NLCS. 
Well, the thing is, also, not only are there more rounds of the playoffs now than you guys were dealing with at least early on, but you guys are in the playoffs every single year, so it's probably hard to keep some of these years straight. because And they weren't the f- wild card. They no. weren't, weren't all those things that are not, which I love now, to be honest with you. I, I still think that there could be a, a few uh, little things they could work out on some of the playoff rounds, but I think it's great now, better than ever, in my opinion, that more teams are involved. We had the luxury of winning the division. The wild card didn't really come into the back of our minds as much. But I think if you're a team that's a good team, that wild card's important to have for other cities around, around the game. I can say this much, so Grant. There was times where when the wild card wasn't into play, there was a second-place team where you mentioned the San Francisco Giants mm-hmm. or, or it could have been somebody else that I'm was sure surging. There, yeah. there was surging, and you're saying, thank goodness they had a bad first half yeah. because we don't want to play these guys now. Yeah, if we played 170 games, they might have run us down. And the Washington Nationals are kind of like that team. I, I think everybody can look at them and say, well, they're not going to probably chase down the Braves. I don't think they will. Right. But, boy, when you think about playoffs and you think about the pitching they have, you say, hmm, they could be a dangerous team. Well, I think they will be, and I think that they're going to be in the playoffs if they can navigate through their September and hold off some of these other wild card teams. And kind of the funny thing as we wrap up here is that wild card that came along in 1995, the first year that that was in existence, the Braves were able to beat the wild card team, the Rockies, on their way to winning the World Series. But I think that wild card is a direct result of the Giants winning 103 games in baseball trying to figure out how a team like that got left sitting at home in October. Right. And uh, that was I wouldn't want to be on the other end of that. No. And I think back to those days and, and granted it was the rivalry of the Dodgers and the Giants back then that both helped us out. The Giants beat the Dodgers in 91 and then the Dodgers beat the Giants in 93. So they each took turns helping us out. Yeah, and you certainly appreciate that because there are nights where you can handle all your business, but you're going to need a little luck and you're going to need a little bit of help. But the Braves right now sitting in a pretty good spot as they head down uh, through the final three weeks of the season with a chance to salt away the NL East and focus on October for what we hope will be more of what we've seen all summer long. It's a very exciting team, very fun team, and I'm glad we get to talk about it just about each and every day. Mark Lemke, appreciate your time as always. And all right, I look Grant. forward to chatting with you in the very, very near future. Sounds good. Well, that'll do it for this episode of From the Diamond. I want to remind you, as always, you can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you'd love to subscribe, also appreciate if you leave a rating and a review. And be sure you're following along on Twitter at From the Diamond underscore. You can find the show. I'm at Grant McCauley on Instagram. The show is at From the Diamond as well. And I am still at Grant McCauley there. And make sure you check out FromTheDiamond.com. You can find every episode of the podcast and a whole lot more waiting for you there as we head down the final three weeks of the 2019 baseball season and get ourselves prepared for October. As always, appreciate you tuning in. Appreciate all those likes and shares and tweets and all the other fun stuff we get to do throughout the week as well. And look forward to talking to you soon on social media and, of course, here on From the Diamond. Until next time, I'm Grant McCauley. So long, everyone.